0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Attention all you budding colorectal surgeons out there. Have you ever wondered why there are limited, high quality resources to help you prepare for the colorectal oral boards? Well, so did we, and we were not impressed with what we found. So we recruited some all-star colorectal surgeons to help you prepare. And today I'm joined by colorectal surgeon extraordinaire, John Abelson, who led the charge in preparing this fantastic colorectal oral board review resource.
1: Well, thanks, Patrick. Uh, Let me just take a moment and thank you and the Behind the Knife crew for recognizing There's a real problem with the way we prepare for oral boards. And I I remember doing endless zoom calls with my buddies going through scenarios and wondering when I was listening to, you know, either myself or someone else practicing saying, is that right? What they just said, is that pace? Okay. Is that enough detail? Is that too much detail? And then in walks behind the knife with oral boards prep for general surgery. And I think from what I hear, it was pretty resounding success. Is that right, Patrick?
0: Yeah, we've uh, we've sought out a lot of feedback and we learned that trainings, preparing for the oral boards really loved the format, among other things. And just to remind you, each scenario includes two parts. Uh, The first part is a perfectly executed oral board scenario that really mimics the real thing. And scenarios are five to seven minutes long and they do include a variety of tactics and styles. And if you can achieve this level of performance in preparation, you're going to pass the exam with flying colors. And then the second part for each of the scenario includes high-yield commentary. And this are things like tips and tricks to help you dominate the most challenging scenarios. Uh, in addition to really practical, kind of easy to understand teaching that covers the most confusing topics that colorectal surgeons are going to come across on their boards, and really more importantly, in real life. And for all these board series that we're putting out, they are designed for the boards, but they're really a fantastic resource to use
1: throughout training. Awesome. Well, I, I do want to say I am honored to be given the opportunity to put together an all of my colorectal poo crew buddies create an oral boards prep for colorectal surgery. So full disclosure, it is not possible to create scenarios to reproduce the world of possible iterations that you may encounter on the actual oral boards. Nor is there a specific score curriculum, for example, like there is for general surgery that you can definitively follow to prepare. So what we did with this preparation is we did our very best to pick the highest yield topics with the highest yield complications and variations of scenario that you might see. And so as Patrick said, with our commentary, we're trying to give you tips and tricks for oral board performance, but then also a specific input for the actual scenarios. And in some cases, really do try to provide this as an educational opportunity, like Patrick was saying, to expand your world of knowledge in the wonderful world of colorectal surgery. So a massive thanks to my colleagues and collaborators, Aaron Dawes, Chris Nembard, and Juliet Ray. We hope you enjoy, and as always, DTD.
2: Behind
1: the Knife Premium. The scenario is familial adenomatous polyposis. The author is Jonathan Abelson. The examiner is Jonathan Abelson. The examinee is Juliet Ray. A 30-year-old female is referred to your office after undergoing a colonoscopy for symptomatic anemia for hemoglobin of 7.4 grams per deciliter. The colonoscopy revealed innumerable adenomatous polyps throughout the colon. Biopsies of several of these polyps were consistent with tubular adenoma. She denies any change in her bowel function and her review of systems is negative other than progressive fatigue and exertional shortness of breath over the past six months. She's otherwise healthy, takes no medications, and has never had surgery before. She's adopted and doesn't know her biologic parents' medical history. How would you proceed with workup and management for this patient?
2: So I would start by reviewing the colonoscopy report to determine if there's any sided distribution of the polyps. I would also want to determine how many polyps are in the rectum and confirm that there is presently no concern for malignancy. I'm concerned that this represents a polyposis syndrome.
1: All right. So you review the report and it confirms that there are innumerable polyps, over 100, throughout the entire colon. There's no specific mention in the report of how many polyps are in the rectum. You do speak with the endoscopist and she tells you there were no concerning appearing lesions to suggest an invasive malignancy.
2: Okay. With that information, I would then examine the patient in clinic. I would do a thyroid exam, a general cardiopulmonary exam, an abdominal exam, and rectal exam. If I have endoscopy in my clinic, I would consent the patient to do flexible sigmoidoscopy as well to determine if there's rectal sparing.
1: All right. So you don't have endoscopy available in your clinic. Uh, The entire exam in the clinic is normal. And the patient asks why you need to repeat the flexible sigmoidoscopy since she just had a colonoscopy.
2: I would explain to her that I'm concerned that she has a polyposis syndrome and may require surgery, um, and the distribution of the polyps may determine the extent of the surgery. I would also recommend that she undergo an upper endoscopy, a thyroid ultrasound, and an ophthalmologic exam, as well as dental exam to rule out extracolonic manifestations of familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome.
1: All right. So you do perform the flexible sigmoidoscopy, and that reveals 15 adenomatous polyps in the rectum. They're all less than one centimeter and have no concerning morphologic characteristics. The upper endoscopy confirms three duodenal adenomas less than five millimeters, and biopsy reveals no evidence of dysplasia, and the thyroid ultrasound reveals an eight millimeter solid nodule.
2: I would counsel the patient that she does appear to have familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome with endoscopically controllable rectal disease. I'd recommend that she undergo at least a prophylactic total abdominal colectomy. And I would discuss with her that since she has relative rectal sparing, we could consider doing an ileo-rectal anastomosis. Um, I'd also discuss that um, there's an option for a restorative proctocolectomy with an ileal pouch anal anastomosis versus total um, proctectomy with permanent ileostomy. Um, I would then also recommend that she have annual thyroid ultrasounds and repeat the EGD no more than every five years based on the number and size of polyps and histology and the presence of dysplasia. Um, I'd also recommend that she undergo genetic testing for APC um, and that she should meet with a genetic counselor. Um, Any first degree relative should also meet with a genetic counselor and be evaluated for possible FAP as well.
1: Right. Uh, She asks, uh, what are the risks and benefits uh, to the different surgical options that you described and which one are you recommending?
2: So I would explain that with less than 20 to 30 rectal polyps that can be completely removed endoscopically, it is reasonable to consider preserving the rectum. She should expect to have about three to five bowel movements per day and will need annual flexible sigmoidoscopy for surveillance of the rectum. Um, If she's interested in childbearing, then I would explain this surgical option would have the least impact on fertility, sexual and urinary function. Um, if she's not interested in preserving the rectum, then she can either undergo a J pouch procedure or undergo a total proctocolectomy with a permanent ileostomy. Um, the benefits of the total proctocolectomy with end ileostomy is avoidance of the need for further surveillance, um, and uh, there would be a perineal wound. Um, the benefit of undergoing the J pouch surgery is to avoid a permanent ileostomy. Um, she should expect to have about six to 10 bowel movements a day with this. And there is a risk of fecal incontinence. Um, usually this happens at night. Uh, her pouch function may worsen over time with increasing bowel movements and worsening daytime and nighttime incontinence. And she may also ultimately require pouch excision, which would put her at risk of another surgery. She would also still need annual pouchoscopy to detect polyp formation in the cuff, um, and also in the pouch.
1: All right, so let's say that she chooses to undergo a total abdominal colectomy with ileo anastomosis. She recovers well from surgery and pathology confirms innumerable tubular adenomas and there's no evidence of malignancy. She's lost to follow-up and presents in the emergency department three years later with progressive abdominal pain and distension with nausea and vomiting over the prior three months. The ER obtains labs and a CT abdomen pelvis that reveals a homogeneous, well-circumscribed mass in the lower abdomen. Within an associated small bowel obstruction with transition point at the mass. How would you manage her at that point?
2: I'm concerned that she has an intra-abdominal desmoid tumor causing a small bowel obstruction. I would start by making sure that she has IV access with IV fluids running. I would also place an NG tube for decompression. I would then discuss with her the different medications available to treat desmoids, but would plan to start her on Sulindac 150 milligrams twice daily. I'd explain to her mm-hmm. that surgery is typically a last resort for intra desmoids.
1: All right, so let's uh, change the scenario around. Let's say that on the initial colonoscopy, the patient had less than 100 polyps found during the initial colonoscopy. Uh, how would that change your
2: management? Um, so in this setting, the patient could have an attenuated form of FAP. Here, the colorectal cancer risk is still 80%. And in general, the surgical plan would be the same, but if there's a low polyp burden, delaying surgery can be considered in certain circumstances. For example, women who, have, um, who are childbearing um, or obese patients who wish to lose weight prior to surgery so that they can be considered for an ileal pouch, anal anastomosis. Um, the mute YH-associated polyposis would also be in the differential. Um, these patients are less likely to have extracolonic manifestations.
0: Be sure to listen to Part B for high-yield commentary and other tips and tricks.
1: Behind the Knife Premium The scenario is familial adenomatous polyposis. The author is Jonathan Abelson. The examiner is Jonathan Abelson. The examinee is Juliette Ray. A 30-year-old female is referred to your office after undergoing a colonoscopy for symptomatic anemia for hemoglobin of 7.4 grams per deciliter. The colonoscopy revealed innumerable adenomatous polyps throughout the colon. Biopsies of several of these polyps were consistent with tubular adenoma. She denies any change in her bowel function and her review of systems is negative other than progressive fatigue and exertional shortness of breath over the past six months. She's otherwise healthy, takes no medications, and has never had surgery before. She's adopted and doesn't know her biologic parents' medical history. How would you proceed with workup and management for this patient?
2: So I would start by reviewing the colonoscopy report to determine if there's any sided distribution of the polyps. I would also want to determine how many polyps are in the rectum and confirm that there is presently no concern for malignancy. I'm concerned that this represents a polyposis syndrome.
1: Whenever you're seeing a patient on the boards or in clinical practice who comes to you with outside records, it's critically important to review those records to confirm the diagnosis and obtain any additional information that might be important to you, but may not be important or necessarily included from the referring physician. So for example, any colonoscopy report that you get, you need to review the report. Ensure it was a complete colonoscopy. Uh, It might also be valuable to say that you want to speak to the endoscopist on the phone to review the report. So this is good practice, both on the boards uh, and in real life, to establish a, a good referral network. All right, so you review the report, and it confirms that there are innumerable polyps, over 100, throughout the entire colon. There's no specific mention in the report of how many polyps are in the rectum. You do speak with the endoscopist, and she tells you there are no concerning appearing lesions to suggest an invasive malignancy.
2: Okay. With that information, I would then examine the patient in clinic. I would do a thyroid exam, a general cardiopulmonary exam, an abdominal exam, and rectal exam. If I have endoscopy in my clinic, I would consent the patient to do flexible sigmoidoscopy as well to determine if there's rectal sparing.
1: On the boards, you're going to need to quickly interpret relevant information from the prompt and additional information given to you by the examiners. This is a 30-year-old female who is found to have innumerable adenomatous polyps in the colon. The differential diagnosis for this presentation is actually quite limited. It's either familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome, FAP, or MUTYH-associated polyposis. The hallmark feature of FAP is colorectal adenomatous polyposis, but the phenotype varies per patient, even within the same family. Severe FAP is characterized by thousands of colorectal adenomas. Mild polyposis is described as having between 100 to 1,000 colorectal adenomas, and patients with fewer than 100 adenomas are considered to have attenuated FAP. Nearly 100% of patients with FAP will develop colorectal cancer if left untreated. Two specific subtypes of FAP are based on a specific constellation of extracolonic manifestations. Gardner syndrome is FAP with desmoid tumors, osteomas, epidermoid cysts, or extranumerary teeth, whereas Turco's syndrome is FAP associated with malignant tumors of the central nervous system. MAP is characterized by multiple colorectal adenomas and an increased risk for colorectal cancer at a younger age, like 40 to 50, but the colorectal polyp phenotype is highly variable. Moderate polyposis, so less than 100 adenomas, is the most common phenotype that we'll see. Polyposis is not necessary for an MAP diagnosis. And as many as 20% of patients present with colorectal cancer without a history of colorectal polyps or synchronous polyps. MAP is the only hereditary colorectal cancer syndrome with an autosomal recessive inheritance pattern. Despite the similar colorectal phenotype to FAP, patients with MAP are less likely to have the extraclonic manifestations that are commonly seen in FAP. No matter what you think the diagnosis may be at this stage in this scenario, you will want to confirm the exact distribution of polyps. Someone with this many polyps will almost certainly need a prophylactic colectomy if they don't already have cancer. You will want to know the proximal and distal extent of your resection, hence the need to confirm is there any rectal sparing. All right. So you don't have endoscopy available in your clinic. Uh, the entire exam in the clinic is normal. And the patient asks why you need to repeat the flexible sigmoidoscopy since she just had a colonoscopy.
2: I would explain to her that I'm concerned that she has a polyposis syndrome and may require surgery. Um, and the distribution of the polyps may determine the extent of the surgery. I would also recommend that she undergo an upper endoscopy, a thyroid ultrasound, and an ophthalmologic exam, as well as dental exam to rule out extracolonic manifestations of familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome.
1: FAP may be diagnosed genetically or clinically. Genetic testing reveals an APC germline mutation in about 80% of cases. FAP may present with clock lesions, including gastro-duodenal adenomas and carcinoma, desmoid disease, osteomas, epidermoidsis, papillary thyroid cancer, small bowel polyps and carcinoma, congenital hyperplasia of the retinal pigment epithelium, or chirpy, and dental anomalies. Specific mutations between exons 311 and 1444 predict congenital hyperplasia, hypertrophy of the retinal pigment. And mutations after 1444 correlate with desmoid development. As a reminder, in patients with a genetic diagnosis or first-degree relatives of someone with a genetic or clinical diagnosis, screening begins at age 12 and can be initiated with flexible sigmoidoscopy. If polyps are seen, a full colonoscopy should be performed. If no polyps are identified on the initial flexible sigmoidoscopy, the exam should be repeated every one to two years or earlier if symptoms develop. For those without a genetic diagnosis, first-degree relatives who are not found to have any polyps by age 40 can safely be transitioned to screening guidelines for the general population. Upper GI endoscopic uh, screening is a key part of FAP, Disease Management. Screening is done with a side-viewing endoscope and should begin at age 20 to 25 years. Screening intervals are based on the Spiegelman staging system, which we will discuss in more detail shortly. There are no specific recommendations for routine screening for desmoid disease or other rare tumors associated with FAP. Annual thyroid screening by ultrasound should, however, be recommended. A total abdominal colectomy with iliorectal anastomosis is a very reasonable surgical option and answer on the boards for patients who have a low polyp burden in the rectum. A low polyp burden has historically be cons- been considered less than 20 to 30 rectal polyps, hence, the importance of really drilling down on the polyp burden in the rectum in this specific scenario. So you do perform the flexible sigmoidoscopy, and that reveals 15 adenomatous polyps in the rectum. They're all less than one centimeter and have no concerning morphologic characteristics. The upper endoscopy confirms three duodenal adenomas less than five millimeters and biopsy reveals no evidence of dysplasia and the thyroid ultrasound reveals an eight millimeter solid nodule.
2: I would counsel the patient that she does appear to have familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome with endoscopically controllable rectal disease. I'd recommend that she undergo at least a prophylactic total abdominal colectomy. And I would discuss with her that since she has relative rectal sparing, we could consider doing an ileorectal anastomosis. Um, I'd also discuss that um, there's an option for a restorative proctocolectomy with an ileal pouch anal anastomosis first total um, proctectomy with permanent ileostomy. Um, I would then also recommend that she have annual thyroid ultrasounds and repeat the EGD no more than every five years based on the number and size of polyps and histology and the presence of dysplasia. Um, I'd also recommend that she undergo genetic testing for APC um, and that she should meet with a genetic counselor. Um, Any first-degree relative should also meet with a genetic counselor and be evaluated for possible FAP as well.
1: You're going to need to strike a fine balance on the boards between giving too much information in your responses but also demonstrating your knowledge. When you divulge too much information, you're opening yourself up to being challenged on information that may be beyond the scope of the scenario. Once you settle on the diagnosis of FAP you should know what the appropriate workup and management recommendations are. For asymptomatic teenagers with FAP, surgery can be reasonably delayed until the late teen years or early 20s when they have reached physical and emotional maturity. Colorectal cancer before the age of 20 is extremely rare. Since cancer risk increases with age, patients diagnosed in their third decade or beyond should be offered surgery at the time of diagnosis. Delaying surgery in an asymptomatic patient may be considered in specific circumstances. Examples include women with a low polyp burden who wish to have children, since pelvic surgery can decrease fertility. It's reasonable to delay proctectomy as long as the patient remains in a strict surveillance program. Morbidly obese patients who wish to undergo pouch-anal anastomosis may delay surgery if they're able to lose weight so that a restorative proctectomy may be more feasible. Also, patients who have desmoids in their family or have risk factors for desmoids may also delay surgery, as most desmoids develop after surgery. We're going to discuss desmoids later in this scenario. Regarding duodenal polyps, you should know that FAP patients should be screened with EGD and that the interval should not exceed 5 years. You should generally be aware of the Spiegelman criteria, which risk stratifies patients for duodenal cancer based on the number of polyps, size of polyps, histology, and presence of dysplasia. It's unlikely that you would be expected to know the exact scoring system and recommendations for different screening intervals based on the stage. In general, duodenal adenomas greater than 1 centimeter or those that contain high-grade dysplasia should be removed endoscopically. Surgical options include pancreatic duodenectomy or pancreas preserving duodenectomy. Regarding thyroid cancer, you should know that patients with FAP are at higher risk than the average population for this type of cancer. Nodules larger than one centimeter should undergo fine needle aspiration. And since cancers tend to be multifocal, thyroid cancer should be treated by total thyroidectomy and radioiodine ablation. You're not going to be expected to know anything more detailed regarding management of thyroid disease in FAP for the colorectal surgery oral boards. There are good data to support having a hereditary cancer center for patients and their family members to be managed by. All first-degree relatives in an FAP family should be evaluated for having FAP. Pretest counseling, uh, preferably with a genetic counselor, should be done. If there's a known APC mutation in the family, then germline DNA testing is appropriate. If no mutation is detected, genetic testing for APC mutations in the family is not indicated. The clinical diagnosis of FAP guides surveillance and treatment recommendations. Uh, She asks, uh, what are the risks and benefits uh, to the different surgical options that you described, and which one are you recommending?
2: So I would explain that with less than 20 to 30 rectal polyps that can be completely removed endoscopically, it is reasonable to consider preserving the rectum. She should expect to have about three to five bowel movements per day and will need annual flexible sigmoidoscopy for surveillance of the rectum. Um, If she's interested in childbearing, then I would explain this surgical option would have the least impact on fertility, sexual and urinary function. Um, if she's not interested in preserving the rectum, then she can either undergo a J pouch procedure or undergo a total proctocolectomy with a permanent ileostomy. Um, the benefits of the total proctocolectomy with end ileostomy is avoidance of the need for further surveillance, um, and uh, there would be a perineal wound. Um, the benefit of undergoing the J pouch surgery is to avoid a permanent ileostomy. Um, she should expect to have about six to 10 bowel movements a day with this, and there is a risk of fecal incontinence. Um, usually this happens at night. Uh, her pouch function may worsen over time with increasing bowel movements and worsening daytime and nighttime incontinence. And she may also ultimately require pouch excision, which would put her at risk of another surgery. She would also still need annual pouchoscopy to detect polyp formation in the cuff, um, and also in the pouch.
1: This is a good example of when there may be crossover between different topics and concepts on the oral boards. Any scenario dealing with FAP may eventually turn into a scenario on pouch lengthening maneuvers. The boards are not designed to trick the examinee in any way, but they'll want to make sure you're able to apply general colorectal principles across many varied scenarios. The decision for what type of surgery to recommend is made based on balancing future cancer risk, with quality of life associated with bowel function, as valued by both the patient and surgeon. Total proctocolectomy with ileal pouch anal anastomosis removes all or nearly all at-risk mucosa and almost completely eliminates future colorectal cancer risk. Restoration of the GI tract via an ileal pouch anal anastomosis results in more frequent bowel movements, higher incidence of incontinence, and decreased quality of life compared to colectomy and iliorectal anastomosis. The improved function of an iliorectal anastomosis is countered by the cancer risk in the residual rectum. Compared to colectomy and iliorectal anastomosis, proctectomy is associated with increased urinary and sexual dysfunction complications, decreased fertility in females, and reduced quality of life scores a small percentage of patients may develop cancer in the anal transition zone or in the ileal pouch. Debate exists over the use of mucosectomy and hand-sewn anastomosis, first double staple of anastomosis during total particleectomy and ileal pouch anal anastomosis, as a means of reducing the risk of subsequent cancer. Mucosectomy to the dentate line, theoretically, removes all colorectal mucosa at risk for neoplasia. However... This technique may leave behind residual cells of rectal mucosa. This risk must be balanced against the cancer risk from a small anal transition zone that remains following a stapled anastomosis. It may be preferable to have any at-risk mucosa in the lumen of the gut where it can be observed over time, rather than implanted outside the ileal pouch at the time of mucosectomy where it can't be observed. Mucosectomy is typically reserved for situations where there's dysplasia and ATZ or a low rectal cancer. Alternatively, a staple anal anastomosis leaves the distal anal mucosa and requires less manipulation of the sphincter complex with less risk of postoperative incontinence. In the presence of colon cancer and metastatic disease or patients with a history of desmoid, or high risk for desmoid, patients may be better served by total abdominal colectomy with ileo anastomosis or proctectomy and ileostomy versus restorative proctectomy, where complications are more common and may delay administration of adjuvant chemotherapy. For patients who develop rectal cancer, total colectomy should be performed with careful consideration of ileo anal anastomosis depending on the clinical stage and possible need for radiation therapy since postoperative radiation therapy is associated with toxicity and risk of pouch loss. If a pouch is not planned and radiotherapy is not given preoperatively, an a mental pedicle flap should be considered to occlude the small bowel from the pelvis in case post-op radiation therapy is unexpectedly required. These are controversial topics that are likely not to be tested on the boards, or if they are, It's done to make sure that you're using appropriate reasoning when talking through the options, as there may not be one correct answer, but there certainly could be a wrong answer. So, for example, radiating a pouch. Again, it would not be wise to simply verbalize all this information on the exam. Rather, you would want to give a brief summary of your rationale for recommending one approach over another, but be prepared to divulge more detail if prompted to do so by the examiner. All right. So let's say that she chooses to undergo a total abdominal colectomy with ileorectal anastomosis. She recovers well from surgery and pathology confirms innumerable tubular adenomas and there's no evidence of malignancy. She's lost to follow-up and presents in the emergency department three years later with progressive abdominal pain and distension with nausea and vomiting over the prior three months. The ER obtains labs and a CT abdomen pelvis that reveals a homogeneous well-circumscribed mass in the lower abdomen Within an associate small bowel obstruction with transition point at the mass. How would you manage her at that point?
2: I'm concerned that she has an intra desmoid tumor causing a small bowel obstruction. I would start by making sure that she has IV access with IV fluids running. I would also place an NG tube for decompression. I would then discuss with her the different medications available to treat desmoids, but would plan to start her on Solendac 150 milligrams twice daily, I'd explain to her that surgery is typically a last resort for intraabdominal desmoids.
1: Desmoid disease can be clinically devastating and is the second most common cause of death in FAP. Risk factors for desmoid formation include a family history of desmoids, female sex, prior abdominal surgery, and specific mutations with the three-prime end of APC, specifically codons 1399 and 1444. You should definitely be prepared to be tested on the management of desmoids and their ramifications. Treatment depends on symptoms, desmoid location, size, and extent of disease. There is a staging system for abdominal desmoids that's based on the presence of symptoms, size, and whether it's growing or not. Advanced desmoids may cause mesenteric ischemia, ureteral or gastrointestinal obstruction, compression of the vena cava, and even death. And so the size and relationship to the mesentery are important details to determine with cross-sectional imaging. You're unlikely to be tested on the scoring system and treatment recommendations based on the staging. You should be aware, however, of the different medical therapies available to treat Desmoids. These include non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as Solindac, which is dosed at 150 to 200 milligrams twice daily, Anti-estrogen therapies such as raloxifene, sixty milligrams twice daily, and chemotherapy agents such as methotrexate, or doxyl, or adriamycin. Although desmoid tumors are radiosensitive, the close proximity to the small bowel limits its use due to toxicity. Surgery for abdominal desmoids is usually reserved for the treatment of disease-related complications such as bowel obstruction, enterocutaneous fistula, and ureteral obstruction. If possible, resection to negative margins is the goal. Intraabdominal tumors are frequently located at the root of the small bowel mesentery and are often not resectable due to the proximity of critical small bowel blood supply. Enteroenteric or enterocolic bypass may provide a palliative option in these situations. Small bowel and multivisceral Uh, transplant have been described as treatment for desmoid disease and its complications. Surgery is usually the first-line treatment for symptomatic abdominal wall desmoids. Due to the location, these tumors are usually able to be safely resected, although the defect in the abdominal wall may need to be closed with tissue flaps or mesh. All right, so let's uh, change the scenario around. Let's say that on the initial colonoscopy, The patient had less than 100 polyps found during the initial colonoscopy. Uh, How would that change your management?
2: Um, So in this setting, the patient could have an attenuated form of FAP. Here, the colorectal cancer risk is still 80%. And in general, the surgical plan would be the same, but if there's a low polyp burden, delaying surgery can be considered in certain circumstances. For example, women who, have, um, who are childbearing um, or obese patients who wish to lose weight prior to surgery so that they can be considered for an ileal pouch, anal anastomosis. Um, the mute YH-associated polyposis would also be in the differential. Um, these patients are less likely to have extracolonic manifestations.
0: Thank you for listening to Behind the Knife Premium Oral Board Review. Dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.